Welcome to China Tech Talk, the weekly discussion of technology and startups here in China. I am John Artman, editor in chief of Techno.com, joined as always by Matthew Brennan, founder of China Channel. So this week we have Fritz Demopoulos on the show to talk about his journey with Tunar.com.、Uh, as you probably know, Tunar is one of the number one destinations for、uh, for travel,、uh, both in terms of getting information, but also booking all sorts of、uh, different Travel, including、uh, plane tickets, train tickets,、uh, hotel, and services around that.、Um, currently, it's owned by Sea Trip,、uh, but we get a bit of the backstory on、um, how it was actually founded originally by some expat co-founders, including Fritz, of course.、Uh, and then we also look take a look at what are some opportunities for entrepreneurs in China currently.、Uh, Fritz is now the founding partner at Queens Road Capital in Hong Kong. No longer an entrepreneur, he focuses more on helping、uh, young teams get their products off the ground. And with that, we give you Fritz Demopoulos. All right, well, Fritz, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Hey, John, I'm happy to be here with you and Matt. So, one of the first questions that we like to ask、um, all of our guests is、um, is what's your what's your China story? And you know, tell us everything leading up to you being in Beijing in、uh, in 2005. Yeah, okay.、Um, I moved to China in 1997, and what initially brought me to China was、um, I was I was an expat, like a lot of people.、Um, I was working for a media conglomerate called、uh, the News Corporation.、Uh, that's part of the Murdoch Empire, and、um, I had this unique opportunity to come to Beijing.、Um, I remember back then I had some great opportunities to work in other parts of the world,、um, and and oddly enough. Beijing paid the least amount of money. It had the least benefits, but it sounded like it, it would be、um, uh, kind of an amazing adventure.、Um, so that was in '97.、Um, fast forward a couple of years, by 1999,、um, the, 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 the internet bubble was in full swing. Some of my friends were starting companies, and I was like, "Well, that's crazy. You know, that's what I need to do."、Um, So in 1999,、uh, me and my co-founders we set up a sports company called Shawei, which means a brave shark in Mandarin Chinese.、Um, we were fortunate to get SoftBank to be a lead investor, along with、um, Intel and IDG.、Um, we、um, grew that business,、um, became one of the top sports properties in the country, and clearly the largest online player. And was profitably acquired by a unit of Hutchison Wampoa Limited, which is a Hong Kong conglomerate.、Uh, um, and um, so that was like my first, say, foray into the Uh, Chinese tech space, and after that,、um, I was a bit bored.、Um, after that exit, and I got a call from my friend from SoftBank, who said, "You know, we invested with News Corp in this game company called NetEase. So,、um, what do you think? You want to join those guys?" I was like, "Well, not really, but、um, but I'll take a look." <laughs>、um, so I went to their office in the Beijing Carry Center, and and it was kind of interesting.、Um, I remember one of my first bosses in the United States once told me,、um, "You need to walk the halls of a company to." Really understand what's going on.、Um, so I was just walking the halls of Netties, and the company had this amazing vibe. There was a lot of energy. Paper was everywhere. Every conference room was filled up. People are on the whiteboard, you know, diagrams.、Um, and I thought, wow, this company is just on fire. And so I was fortunate to join them.、Um, and and at, at that time,、um, a, a lot of the shares of publicly listed companies weren't doing as well. But、um, over the next few years, we were one of the top stocks on the Nasdaq, and、um, continues to be a stellar company.、Um, um, and then. After that,、um, 
my co-founders and I from the sports site, we were like, you know what? We need to do another company. Um, there was this guy called, uh, you probably have interviewed him or know, or know of him, um, Edward Tien, founded a number of um, interesting companies, including um, Asia Info um, and uh, China Broadband Capital. And people used to refer to Edward Tien as a serial entrepreneur. And I remember the first time uh, Christy Vu Stout from CNN was uh, kind of describing him as a serial entrepreneur. I thought, you know what? I want to be a serial entrepreneur. Um, so um, that kind of motivated me with my co-founders to set up Chunar, and that was in 2005. So how did you come up with the idea for Chunar? I heard the idea came to you at a train station. Yeah, that's right. Um, we were, it was uh, me and the sports team were sitting at a Starbucks at the Hong Kong Airport Express <laughs> train station, sitting, talking. We, you know what? We got to set up a business. And um, one of my co-founders said, well, you know what? We look at Google. They make a lot of money from a bunch of different verticals. We thought, could we create a better mousetrap for one of those verticals? Uh, so back in early 2005, late 2004, Google was one of the hottest internet companies. Still is, obviously. And at that time, they were worth maybe $100 billion. And we just systematically looked at all their revenue streams. And we, and we realized very quickly that travel was a big vertical for them, as was automotive. Medical and healthcare was a nice vertical. Financial service was another one. And so those four, we looked at very systematically and thought, okay, we're going to focus on one of these. And if we do well, we could also be worth a billion, we could be worth a billion dollars at least. Um, and so that was our inspiration. And we ultimately picked travel because it didn't seem as regulated as um, financial services. Um, it seemed very fragmented, unlike um, automotive. And um, we just, and the last thing we want to do was to, you know, flog dodgy healthcare products, right? And so, which is why we decided to ignore the um, healthcare vertical. I mean, Obviously, there's a lot of um, Chinese entrepreneurs that have focused on flogging dodgy healthcare products, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, so we picked travel. Um, and, you know, that was the an, an initial impetus was it was, I guess you could describe it as a very top-down approach. Where's the money being made? Can we carve out a piece for ourselves? Can we create a better mousetrap? And that's how it started. Um, and then only later did we realize that a price comparison engine, a search engine, or a marketplace model, which is what Chunar um, ultimately evolved into, what was the right business model versus some of the other travel models that um, we saw emerge. And so when you were looking at uh, looking at Google and how they were um, approaching search and things like that, I mean, like you were thinking in terms of verticals, you're thinking about, you know, advertising revenue as, as the, the main business model, at least at least at first. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so our thinking on um, revenue generation uh, obviously evolved over time, but, but but initially we thought this was going to be an advertising model. I had worked in the media business before. Um, my co-founders had also, uh, at least one of my co-founders had also worked in the media biz. So we thought this made a lot of sense. Um, but what's interesting is over time, what we realized is, um, you know, advertising and e-commerce models aren't that different, especially within the digital space. Um, you know, what, you know, like earning a commission versus selling a click or selling an or, or, or some form of advert really was just a, a, a differentiation, a, a different pricing strategy. Um, and so you know, that kind of, um, you know, really inspired us to kind of, uh, you know, grow the business, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different ways of starting a business. You guys chose to start with thinking about monetization early on. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's different ways to set up a business or I, I guess um, find that spark of inspiration. One is the top-down approach, which is what we took, which is more like follow the money, I guess. Um, there's another approach, right, which is solving a very personal pain point. Um, that's like the Airbnb guys did that, right? You know, Brian Chesky and, and, and his co-founders, you know, they kind of had this experience, this very unique problem in San Francisco and voila, they set up Airbnb. Um, and then there's a third way, I guess, which is, 
Um, maybe you um, work very closely with your partners and you spend a lot of time um, and then somehow there's some inspiration that comes out of that. Um, 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 yeah, so, you know, there's different ways of doing it. Um, oh, and, and maybe a, a final way is like some people say, I want to change the world. So, okay, good for you. Change the world. You know, I just want to make some money. Right? Um, um, and, and so there's different, again, so there's different ways of thinking about it. Um, um, I, I, I thought it was interesting, Matt, that, that, that you mentioned, you know, having like domain knowledge and we didn't, um, it is interesting. So me and my co-founders, we, at, at that time, you know, we had set up other businesses in China. So we were experienced entrepreneurs. We understood the technology landscape. Um, so we had a lot of domain knowledge, not specific to an industry, but specific to, you could say, building technology companies within China. Um, so we had some domain there, um, uh, uh, some domain knowledge there, but not necessarily kind of within the travel industry. Um, and and what we've seen is most most innovations in verticals usually come from outsiders. You know, sometimes it comes from an insider, but in, in, in many cases, um, it, it, it really comes from outsiders. Um, like, you know, within travel, um, I could highlight a number of examples of outsiders that have come in who didn't have any experience and just create a billion dollar business. You know, Brian Chesky did it with Airbnb. Um, Johannes Reck and Tao Tao did it with Get Your Guide. Um, you see it with uh, the Trabago guys in Germany. Um, so we tend to see that a lot. So we didn't have any um, really direct competitors um, because um, so back when we started, we didn't think Ctrip was a competitor because they had a different pricing model. Today, we have to ignore pricing models when we think about who our real competitors are or not. Um, but back then, we thought, well, you know, Ctrip's not a competitor because we're an aggregator of information. We're not processing transactions like Ctrip was doing. Um, um, but 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 obviously, you know, um, having the benefit of hindsight, um, they were a competitor. But specifically, companies that were following our very 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 specific model, um, there were only um, not many. Um, um, there was uh, there was a hobbyist. Um, he had a site that was somewhat similar to us, but he wasn't full time. Um, and um, you know, it was it was it was pretty much a tabula rasa for us. Um, so so yeah. So looking looking, you know, still kind of st- sticking with like the 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 conception of of Tunar. I mean, so looking at you, you describe some of your co-founders, and can you talk a little bit more about uh, the founding team? You know, where where and how you were able to raise capital, and and how and how you guys looked at uh, structuring the business itself. Right. Um, in terms of my co-founders, CC uh, Zhuang, he's a brilliant technologist and and, and frankly, uh, like a very good businessman also. Um, and Douglas Koo, he's Malaysian. Chinese, um, and then myself, and I kind of had a more business development, media industry background. Um, and, so, and, so, and so the three of us had set up Chunar, and we had also set up Shawei, you know, the sports site. And, and frankly, there was a third company we had set up that didn't go anywhere. Um, but like, we don't like to talk about our failures, right? <laughs> um, but uh, and, and, and then we also had a core founding team of three or four people who were extremely um, exceptional leaders and managers technologists and you know they were with us for many many years as well um and, and so what we did was we always knew we needed three or four really really good people um who were super loyal and you know we paid them ex- extremely well or the, i should say uh, we compensated them with options extremely well and uh were super loyal to them for many many years um and then like they grew with us you know like we all evolved and became better and it, it was kind of a unique story where, where all of us had great strengths and those became much more accentuated and some of our weaknesses we were able to mitigate 
Um, um, but what we did was me and my uh, two co-founders, you know, we put up the initial capital um, and then we were very optimistic because we had a success before. Um, but, you know, what was funny was uh, people ignored us. Um, then um, we had the top 30 venture capitalists over an 18-month period before um, a firm finally decided to give us some money. And so that whole time, we're just, you know, paying out of our own pockets and it was just getting very, very expensive. And, um, and, and so we were able to raise our first round of capital. I mean, we had some friends who put in a little bit of money, um, but it, it was a difficult period because um, so, so what's interesting, you know, they say in Hollywood, you're only as good as your last movie. And like, we're on, like, like we're only good as our last startup, right? In kind of the tech space. And people who I thought would no brainer give us money were like, well, like, are you sure you want to do this travel thing? You know, you know, travel's done already, right? Travel's done. It's going to be a little niche vertical dominated by a company called Secret, right? Um, you know, nobody thought that travel could be so big, right? And so massive and everything can be online and stuff like that, right? And, and so we, so, and so, so in spite of having a track record and some experience, you know, it, 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 it really takes a long time to get, you know, to convince um, institutional investors to come in. Um, and um, so that was very tricky. Um, but, you know, we were ultimately able to start raising capital and we were able to prove uh, to the markets that, that, that we were building a very viable business. Um, but it was, it was, it was, it was a very difficult period. That's for sure. So what do you, what do you think did it? I mean, like, so, you know, looking, looking at those, those 18 months, yeah, how difficult it was. I mean, like, what do you think was able to get you to get you that, that, uh, that funding after all that time? I think, um, I, I, I think a couple of things, um, as a funny story. Um, uh, so me and my co-founders put up our own money, right? First of all, right. So, and, and we were pretty focused and this one venture capitalist, it was kind of a compliment insult, I guess. <laughs> uh, and he said, you know, Fritz, I really admire you and your co-founders because you're so dogged and you're so focused, although it's a bad idea. <laughs> um, so, so obviously he missed out. Um, uh, but like, uh, like another investor said, thought about it and said, well, you know, these guys are really focused. And he even told us, well, um, he said um, that he loves the travel category. He wasn't sure what we were doing now was going to work, but he knew we, but he, he knew we could figure it out. And so that was why he made the bet on us. Um, and, and so maybe we were able to show, you know, because we, we were trying different things. Um, and, and, and the investors that ultimately put in money had been monitoring our progress for a year. I mean, a whole year, can, you can imagine, right? Um, seeing some of the ups and downs and all that sort of stuff. But even then, the business wasn't really going that well. And then we, we, we didn't have much revenue. And then even after we raised you know, that capital, we still were struggling. Um, I mean, we were had a good thing is we had constant improvement. Um, um, but, but the one thing is, you know, my co-founders and I did not waver at all, um, which is interesting. Uh, you know, there's this saying in Silicon Valley or, you know, like some people, use the word pivot. Oh yeah, we decided to pivot, right? Which basically means that you didn't have the wherewithal to stick to your vision, right? Um, um, I mean, there's a technical word for pivot, which, you know, like Eric Ries writes about, right? Which is really like optimizing and testing and stuff like that, right? But mm. um, what we found is, um, you know, a lot of people misinterpret that word for being, you know, if things are difficult, just you know, change direction. For us, because we hadn't read the book, when things were difficult, <laughs> uh, we just kept focusing and sure enough, it paid off. But I mean, do you, do you, do you think that, you know, that, that, that first investor that he expected you to pivot at some point. I mean, and he was he was betting on the team rather than than the product itself. Yeah, he was. Um, but um, he, he probably maybe thought that maybe we would pivot. Um, and you know, we were tempted to do it. Um, but what what was interesting was um, it made so much logical sense. Like our vision just made so much logical sense that there was no, really no reason to pivot. So so like we weren't getting traction, or, or we were getting some traction, right? But it just made so much sense what we were doing that it was. 
it, it just, you know, like, again, like Google was making so much money from travel and we were es- es- essentially providing a similar service to travel advertisers or sellers of travel products, right? It, it just made so much logical sense, right? Um, and, um, and, and so because of that, um, we didn't change direction. How did you come up with the name? And um, what about the logo? Well, you know, Chunar obviously means where are you going, right? So like, it was amazing that that URL existed, right? If, if you think about it. Um, and um, But how we came up with the idea was uh, there was a book that Bill Gates once once wrote. I think it was called, like, Where Are You Going Today? Remember that book? I don't, I don't know if you guys read it. Um, and um, and it, it, it was kind of funny. Um, and, and then so I was, so basically, like, I, I was in a cab and um, I thought, where are you going today? And I thought, okay, Wachunar, right? So, 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 you know, so where am I going today? Um, and then what was really interesting was that was available as well as Chunar, right? So, like, that was the inspiration was a billboard um, advertising Bill Gates's book right um and, and so i i i i i, I, th- I thought that was interesting um and uh, the camel was a temporary logo because we didn't know what logo we would have <laughs> and somehow it stuck <laughs> right <laughs> so it was like that i mean it was just you know and the reason why you pick an animal is i don't know like you want something that looks good on a t-shirt right and you know there's a chunar province right in um, afghanistan right so um maybe um <laughs> i don't know and, and and the afghanis have camels right um uh, but uh, yeah it's it, 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 it is a little bit funny i guess um i don't know it it still feels a little bit uh unpolished yeah, that's right. Um, we, we probably, uh, you, you know, certain businesses um, are very functional, provide a very specific service, and maybe branding and logo and design aren't as important. And that's what we did a price comparison engine. Like we help you find great deals, right? Very functional. You know, other brands and businesses a little bit more experiential. Maybe that's where logo becomes a little bit more important. I mean, you know, not to discount jobs, and maybe we should have. And you know, looking back, maybe that's one thing that we could have done a little bit better on is. Think about the logo a little bit better, maybe, you know, some of the polish and stuff like that. But we were so scrappy in some ways when, when you're so scrappy for so long, you kind of forget how to be polished. What were the key aha moments? Yeah, you know, maybe in like the early days, um, like one of the key aha moments was, I, I mentioned earlier about business model, you know, like someone said, so, hey, you know, C-Trip's different than us. Google's different than us. You know, we, you know, like we're a price comparison company and C-Trip's a transaction company. But then what we realized is consumers don't care about business models. Consumer wants to buy a ticket, book a hotel room, right? You know, that's the only thing they want to do. And so we realized we have to ignore business model and think very, very carefully, you know, what does a consumer really want and take responsibility for that. Um, It's so easy. And in fact, you know, it's one of the Google problems today, right? You know, they list a bunch of stuff and you link out to it and they're not responsible to the kind of where that link goes, right? Um, And then we're like, well, maybe we should be responsible for that, right? Because the consumer trusts our brand uh, to come up with a solution. And like, I can't tell a consumer, well, I'm just a price comparison engine. You know, I'm not responsible if someone cheats you or not right it, 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 it's 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 like when you go to the financial times and the advertising section and they say we're not responsible for these ads right yeah, that's what they say right um and we realized well maybe there's a different way of thinking on this maybe we should be responsible for those ads um and which by the way is you know the jack ma playbook um and then once we realized we had to do that we started implementing all sorts of standards for everyone on the platform having a certain level of customer service a certain level of transparency in terms of how they present their travel products to our users, uh, our return policies, accuracy rates, like all that sort of stuff. And so we insisted that everyone follow certain standards, I guess. Um, and, and that was really driven from that inspiration of we need to be responsible for, for everything. Um, although our company may not actually technically process the transaction or be responsible for the delivery of those products, we need to be responsible for it nonetheless. And so, you know, this was, this was I mean, I just I just realized that, um, that it's kind of funny that we actually have to call this out, but this 
this was, you know, before the mobile internet, really. I mean, so all of this was being done on, on a, on a uh, desktop browser, right? Yeah, so that was our uh, our initial success was on the desktop browser. Um, but then um, it was interesting. I mean, we weren't the fastest in the mobile space. You know, even Air China had a mobile app before we did, right? Which is kind of weird because they're a government entity, right? Um, but once we recognized how important it would be, we became really aggressive. And that led to a massive surge in spending to, to, to frankly ensure that we were on everyone's mobile phone. Uh, but yeah, um, when there's a platform shift, not many companies are, are, are able to capitalize on to the new platform. Um, but fortunately, we were able to do it. You know, I just I just recall, I mean, there was um, just a, a conference that I went to back in like 2009. So what just like as the mobile internet was kind of just getting started, kind of. Um, but I just remember that uh, someone from Ctrip said said that even though they had their website, um, even though they 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 processed a, a, a fair number of bookings through the site, actually a lot of their um, a lot of their revenue was coming through uh, phone calls. So people would maybe they would look up look up something um, on Ctrip.com. They would find a hotel or 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 a airline ticket, um, but then they would end up calling um, to actually uh, to actually finish um, the uh, the 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 purchase process. I'm curious. Was it was it similar with with Chunar as well? Do you guys do you guys set like see a similar kind of uh, process where people trusted phone transactions more than online transactions? Yeah, they did initially. I mean, usually in the world of e-commerce, I mean, it, it's it's kind of hard today to remember what happened 10, 15 years ago. But like it used to be, you would uh, call up and then you would do a booking, but you would call anyways to make sure that they got it right. And then you would just do the booking, right? It would be the third phase, right? And, and, and so kind of in some ways, um, um, sorry, yeah, in, in some ways it was, it was, it was similar. Um, but you know what, maybe one way to think about it is, you know, the genius behind, you know, the C-Trip founders was their whole view was we got to solve customer problems. If the customers want to use a phone, we don't care. We're going to have a scalable call center operation, right? Customers want to book online, we'll do that. If they want to do mobile, we'll do that. And maybe in the future, if they want to do virtual reality, we'll do that too. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, you know, like one way to think about it might be when online travel started with Expedia in 1995, I guess it was. Um, they were representing sellers. So basically, Expedia's whole goal was we're going to go to airlines and hotels and we're going to try to sell your product better to consumers, Repre- i.e. they were representing suppliers to consumers. Chunar turned around and did the opposite. We said, hey, we're going to help consumers figure this mess out. That was our thinking. And, and, and Matt, like the example you just brought up, hey, people want to have a nice you know, top of the atmosphere look at price and how it changes. So we're going to provide that to consumers. So our whole thinking wasn't, how do we help suppliers? It was like, how do we help consumers? And, and so that was kind of like our, our, our you know, totally different approach to this. And, and, and luckily, we were able to resonate with consumers. How long did it take you to get traction? Uh, when did things really start to hockey stick in terms of user numbers? It was just a gradual slog, which is really funny. It, it, was, it, it was just a gradual slog over the years, basically. Yeah. Um, so, so unlike other companies that have this massive boom in traffic, we were like methodical, slow. But what happened was our consumers were extremely loyal. And, you know, it was like one day we woke up and we found out, you know, to be honest, this is a funny story. Like we didn't know how big we were because we were just methodical, you know, traffic didn't spike. I mean, like we were going three times every year for seven years, right? So you can imagine, you know, like the power of compounding, right? Eventually you're going to be massive, right? But we didn't know how big we were until we were talking to Air China one day and they said, oh yeah, you're 
you're the biggest channel for us. Well, what do you mean? Oh, yeah, amongst everyone, offline, online, anything in China, you're our biggest supplier of tickets. I'm like, really? Our, our seller of tickets. And we're like three times bigger than Baidu, 10 times bigger than Google, twice as big as Alibaba. We're the biggest player in the market. And it was like, a, and, and that was another aha moment for us. Like, oh, really? Wow, amazing. That was probably, uh, I don't know, around 2009, 2000, something like that. So four or five years into it. In 2011, you negotiated a, a $306 million uh, investment deal with, with Baidu. Uh, tell us about how that went down and, and what were your experiences there? Yeah, right. So Baidu came on in, in, as an investor and they wanted to take control of the business. And so we had to make a key decision um, whether we stay independent or do we partner up with one of the big players. Um, and like my co-founder, CC, likes to describe, there's a cost to being number one. And that cost might mean significant dilution, but at the same time, a lot of other you know strategic resources and benefits. And so we, in 2011, brought in Baidu to take about 50, to 53% of the company um, um, in exchange for a massive investment, which allowed us to to accelerate our growth um, as, as well as, you know, the you know, the traffic resources from Baidu and engineering resources and some other uh, strategic value add. But there's a cost, right? I mean, we could have been independent, but we would have probably grown slower. Yeah, I, th- I think it was a great deal. I mean, we did become number one or number two, right? Or like a, I mean, like we challenged Sea Trip for sure, right? So uh, it makes total sense to to, uh, to have done it. Um, you know, um, we were tempted to stay independent, but I think um, it was it, it, it was definitely the right decision. I mean, and fortunately for us. We had a deeper relationship with Baidu than we did with Ali and Tencent, although we talked to all of them. I mean, like we talked to all the players, including the big global players, and it just seemed to make a lot of sense with Baidu to work with them at the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, all three were, you know, like I, I think at the same size. And, and, and obviously, when the mobile revolution continued to move quickly and the e-commerce revolution continued to move, both Tencent and Ali did a little bit better, obviously. Um, then we have some new challengers. And then, of course, Baidu's core business is based with new challengers, including Tiao, obviously. And Meituan is doing an exceptional job in a fact, number of players. And, um, and, and so, yeah, so we see, um, you know, um, but back then, uh, both those three were so every few years you have you know you know there's the top three and like every few years they kind of change right you know like many years ago i remember in the states people used to consider yahoo and microsoft as key players in the market right and nowadays it's like what so what are you talking about right i mean microsoft has kind of resurged obviously but yahoo Yahoo is just a shell of its former self right yeah yeah it's funny because it, it, it all seems at the time it all seems very permanent um um, whereas, of course, so so we're talking about you know kind of what what that cycle might be you know now with Alibaba and uh, Tencent ascendant, um, but it feels quite permanent because their their market position it, it seems pretty solid, um, and so it's, it's and that's I guess that's really the key with disruption. Um, you know, you can you never quite see it coming. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, that's a, you know, that's the great hope for entrepreneurs is we've seen so much change and, you know, the leader, you know, the volatility of, or, or you could say the churn rate for the top players seems to be much faster, right? Like it took, you know, GE to be thrown off the, you know, Dow Jones 30, like it took them a hundred years, right? But maybe, but maybe these newer companies on the Dow Jones are going to be thrown off much faster, right? Who knows, right? Um, and uh, so, so we're seeing a bit more that's a change is happening faster, more volatility, stuff like that. Right. Um, but I think, um, 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 yeah. And again, you know, that's some great hope for us entrepreneurs. Um, um, some people say, well, you know, the big guys today are trying to control the market too much and financing too much and stuff like that. Um, but that's what, uh, you know, we thought years ago as well. Right. 
Um, but um, who knows? Maybe that volatility will slow down. And if it does, um, that may not be good for entrepreneurs. Especially when you were getting started, there was a, a lot of, shall we say, bad behavior. Uh, how did you cope with that? Did you have to get into any of the uh, sort of dirty tricks uh, yourself? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's obviously no surprise. There's a lot of bad behavior in the market, right? Um, well, the, I guess, yeah, with, uh, I'll take a step back. There's a lot of brutal behavior and there's a lot of bad behavior and those two are different, right? I mean, like, you know, like you have brutal competitors that are just conniving and aggressive and we were the same way. And then you have bad behavior, which kind of goes into a legal gray area, right? And, you know, I, I think it's important to differentiate between the two. And, and I would never advise anyone to participate in bad in bad behavior and we never did um and you know i i, I think some ignorant pundits and outsiders uh, like to say that you have to engage in bad behavior to win in china which uh, which i personally do not believe um however some brutal behavior uh, maybe you have to engage in that right using pr to your advantage um biting it out um pri- you know price wars poaching employees um, you know, um, all sorts of, you know, blocking and tackling in a very ferocious way. But, you know, that's just part of the course. Um, and yeah, so we had to deal with, I mean, we had a lot of PR battles with our competitors, which actually were some of the most fun parts of, you know, the experience with Chunar, to be honest. Um, um, but yeah, you know, it, it was difficult. Um, I mean, that's for sure. But hey, to be successful in this world, we have to execute well, we have to build teams, all these things that, you know, we read about in the management books. And we also have to be very strategic. And being strategic, means, amongst other things, being able to predict what we think our competitors are going to do. And uh, too many people can't predict what their competitors do, will do, or they can only think one move ahead. But to be a grandmaster in chess, you have, to, you have to be able to think five or six moves ahead, right? And, you know, similarly, I think, you know, to be very successful in the rough and tumble world of Chinese tech space, um, you need to be able to think a few moves ahead um, um, as part of your strategic planning. Um, and this isn't the only part of strategic planning. Obviously, there's other parts, but... Um, I, I think um, some of the failed players uh, haven't really thought about that too much. So I'm, I'm curious. And so you mentioned that the uh, excuse me. <clears throat> so you mentioned that the um, that the PR battles were some of the most fun. I mean, can you give us? Uh, are there any examples specific specifically that kind of that kind of come to mind? Yeah, probably the biggest one was called Slashgate or Huaxianmen um, in Chinese. And so we had, so on our website, we had the prices of all the sellers in the market, including CTREP and Elong and a, and a range of other players. And then anytime their price was too high, we'd put a red line through it, right? So if, for example, like the lowest price was $50 and CTREP was selling it for $70, we'd put a red line through CTREP's price. And for some reason, they took offense to that and they thought it was damaging their brand by having like a line through it. Um, and so they sued us for it. And for some reason, the, you know, the court took the case. Um, and, you know, courts take cases in China for many, many different reasons, obviously. And so, you know, they took this case and it was a really fun PR battle because at that time we were probably 120th the size of C-Trip when they sued us. Um, so it was kind of funny. And, and, and of course, they sued us for anti-monopolistic or um, say pro-monopoly practices, right? Or so like basically we had broken the anti-monopoly law. And so it was kind of funny that the company 20 times our size was suing us for breaking an anti-monopoly law. Um, and then we had a lot of, you know, a typical David versus Goliath battle uh, that, had, that had raged on for a number of weeks. Um, and like my head of marketing who was leading that effort became a very famous person in his own right. Um, and people were talking about it. And, and, and obviously like the greatest compliment was when, was when James Long, you know, the chairman of C-Trip uh, told me, you know, Fritz, your PR is just brilliant. Hats off to you. <laughs> uh, how's your Chinese? What was it like founding and running a Chinese company with uh, limited language 
I mean, I speak broken Mandarin, right? So whatever that means, right? I mean, but, you know, like, could I negotiate a deal in Chinese? It would be hard. Um, but, you know, I, I guess you could say like my Mandarin is like bar Mandarin, right? Let's have a chat, let's talk, stuff like that. But but in order to be eloquent at a press conference or on a podcast, for example, it, I wasn't very good. What about dealing with uh, Chinese clients and partners? Did you have to uh, adopt local customs, uh, like drinking Baijiu dinners? I, I guess you have to, you know, like uh, Wayne Gretzky said, you have to go where the hockey, you have to skate to where the hockey puck, puck is going, right? Not where it is today. And what we find is most people in China don't want to drink by Joe, to be honest. You know, they'd rather spend time with their families or have a nice meal, right? And listen to some nice music. Like they don't want to have this horrible banquet, alcohol infested experience, right? And it was something that I hated anyways, but I realized more and more Chinese didn't want to do that. They wanted a healthy lifestyle, right? So we just followed what we thought was right. And it was just like we were lucky because like we were able to pick up the cues, right? Uh, and realize that there's a lot of people who, you know, don't want to do that. And sure, there were some who did. And I just had my head of sales deal with that silly stuff, right? But um, yeah, you know, you're right. You don't need to look. I mean, uh, a localization is important, but we need to understand why it's important. And then and then you have to make a decision. So I'm not saying we were completely foreign. There's a lot of things we did that were local. And there were some things that I thought we didn't have to do, right? Because we realized that even our local friends didn't want to do it. Yeah, so in the early days, right? So in, in the early days, our core team all spoke English well, but then what we realized was we were missing out on some amazing talent who actually didn't speak English. So me and my co-founder had to come to an agreement that we're going to hire some amazing people who don't speak English, and we just have to accept it. Because why should the come center around me? It should center around you know the market basically, because ultimately we're paid to build great products and exploit great markets, and not cater to my uh, like limitations in Chinese, right? And so we changed, um, and we, we because initially we were hiring a lot of people who spoke English. It was like an important requirement, but then we realized that would be a waste of time and, 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 and we would miss out on some unique opportunities. Um, so we, um, and that's fine, you know, like we were able to get around it through various tricks and strategies, for example, like, so like, so we insisted all meetings be in Chinese, but we also insisted that there be a written agenda ahead of time and we have a summary um, after the meeting written. So those could be translated for me. And so then I, it, it and, and what happened was that process of having written agendas ahead of time and summaries a, after a meeting, all of a sudden we became more organized <laughs> you know that was a you know that was the silver lining in this whole effort which was great uh was being a foreign founded team ever really a roadblock no we didn't really i mean it wasn't like we to be honest like we didn't highlight it and we also didn't shy away from it it was like it, it kind of it is what it is right you know um and you know like some people were like kind of surprised they would say it was you know like we were able to show hey there's foreigners in this company but somehow it was it it, it, it wasn't like a stark right because you know we were smart about it and um and, and, and you know to me it was like hey you know like i only have a place in china if i contribute on a local level um, um so it's not like okay foreigners do foreign foreign things and chinese do chinese things it's no we all do everything and and like anything in life we have to add value and if we don't have that value we're out right or we're not going to get compensated right and so i had to add value on a local level i had to come up with ideas and perspectives about you know local issues it, it meant i had to learn a bit better but then after many years in china you pick up a few tricks along the way right and you have insights that could be valuable even to the locals you know it, it isn't like a black box right you know surprisingly chinese people have breakfast in the morning then they have lunch and then they have dinner they go to the office they have kids you know and frankly they want their kids to do better than them they think education is important and they like entertainment it's like well 
that's exactly like anywhere in the world, right? People have kids, they have breakfast in the morning, you know, they do all the same stuff we do, right? Maybe the breakfast is different, right? Maybe it's that um, hot bean soup versus eggs, I don't know, and bacon, right? But it's it's kind of the same. I mean, on, on, on one level, everyone's the same. And it's just these nuances. And you just have to be smart enough to recognize the differences. Um, but so kind of as a way to start wrapping it up, um, like kind of two questions <clears throat> with maybe a similar, similar, um, similar answer. So so the first question is, if you could go back and do it again, is there anything that you would change? And what would be your best advice to entrepreneurs looking to crack the China market? Okay, great. Uh, so probably the biggest mistake we made was we didn't value human resources flat out. Uh, our, our VP of HR initially worked for our CFO. Me and my co-founder felt HR was like an admin issue. We, we didn't understand the strategic implications of a really effective HR department in terms of you know, motivation, compensation, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think looking back, we would first and foremost make sure that our head of HR was a very senior, experienced person who could spar with us on a strategic level and um, um, almost as an equal. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we didn't really focus on that too much. And I mean, I was just, in, in, in a very arrogant way, we thought this is admin, right? It's like accounting, right? HR and accounting, the same level, right? We, we didn't realize how important it was. Um, I mean, obviously, Jack Ma has shown the way on, uh, on, on how important this really is. Um, so look, so, so going back, I, I probably, you know, in the early days, I'd have a, a strategic head of HR and, and I would also myself educate myself and spend more time on that. Um, you know, my advice to um, entrepreneurs or foreign entrepreneurs, I guess, is simple. Three in 10. Do three startups over 10 years in China because you don't know which one's going to work. Maybe it's the first one, the second one, the third one. Who knows, right? Um, and you're going to have to commit 10 years of your life um, because it's going to take that long to figure things out. And, and if you're lucky, the first one works. But if not, it'll be the next one. And if not, it'll be the one after that. And if those three don't work and it's been 10 years, well... Shake hands. You've had an amazing adventure. You've met a lot of great people. It's been some of the funnest, you know, times of your life. And maybe go somewhere else. <laughs> so, like that's how I think about it. You know, be super committed. You have to be committed to the market. That's the ten years, and you have to be committed to doing more than one project because you don't know which one's going to work. And, and and we have to accept the variability and the luck and the serendipity um, in success. Yes, we're capable and smart, but we're. I mean, I, I know tons of smart and capable people, way more than me, that that just didn't crack it. Um and and I, I think some of that was a bit of luck and maybe being a bit more strategic and stuff like that, but like it could have gone the other way too. So, you know, like I accept it, right? We, so we have to accept that uh, there's some variability um, and, or, or, or serendipity in, in what we do and it's no big deal. Um, it, it's just, but if you focus on three projects, uh, a serendipity kind of evens itself out a bit. So, I mean, would you would you say that is it? I mean, is it still possible for foreign entrepreneurs to you know make an impact in in China today, or do you think there's there's opportunity for foreign entrepreneurs? I mean, it, it seems like these days there's not that many examples of you know expats really kind of making making a big impact in the China market. It's true. Um, um, are there opportunities? There are massive opportunities. I think for for everybody. Um, it's just as a foreigner, you, you're going to have to compete with the locals and do it in the local way and. Unfortunately for the foreigners, you know, there's a asynchronous disadvantage when it comes to information because most Chinese entrepreneurs, they know their market and they know the States too. You know, they read English, you know, they go to websites, you know, they try to figure out what's hot in the States, right? Um, and so and, and so your competitors, which are, are the locals, know both, right? Um, um, but, you know, being a foreigner alone doesn't really um, amount to anything, to be honest. You know, in China, it's just you're going to have to compete and fight it out like everyone else. 
build good teams. And so it's not rocket science, right? Um, um, you're going to have to focus on it uh, like everyone else. Um, 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 you know, it used to be maybe 20 years ago, you know, you know, the notion of the foreign expert, quote unquote, I'm a foreigner, I must be an expert, right? That was about maybe 20, 25 years ago. Um, and then a lot of Chinese would listen to you just because you're a foreigner, right? And then, um, and over time, the Chinese realized, well, some foreigners are smart and some are useless. You know, they started to differentiate, right? You know, like they realized that, you know, Goldman Sachs was um, like a different institution than the Riverside you know, California Investment Bank or something like that, right? Um, and then now maybe the pendulum may have swung a bit too much the other way where all foreigners are useless. You know, after the financial crisis in 2008, you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, they realized, well, I mean, maybe these guys aren't smart at all, to be honest. Um, and so, so it really swung to one extreme. But, but now I think it's coming back a bit. Hey, you add value. It doesn't matter where you are or, or, or like... And, you know, and, and, and also it's kind of hard to understand, you know, what is a foreigner anyways, right? Like if you think about it, right? Because uh, there could be a ethnically Chinese person who came back to China. Are, are they a foreigner? It could be someone who, who like grew up in China but went to college in the States. It could be someone who went to college in China and spent five years in the States. So we don't really know what that means anymore, right? Um, but, you know, technically a foreigner without any references to Chinese culture whatsoever, uh, without strong language skills, um, it's going to be tough. But I do think it's, you know, doable. It's being creative and smart and focusing on stuff, taking risk and, you know, you know, all the things that we read about in the management books. The, the key in my experience is, um, is, is the is cross-cultural fluency. And that's, that's where, that's where, um, a lot of foreigners can, can find their value. And especially these days with so many companies going abroad, um, being able to consult in a sense, or to bring, um, an understanding of both cultures. And so in the sense of, you know, what's the value of this, this Chinese company and how do I explain that to a Western audience or how do I help this Chinese company to, um, to bridge, to bridge that gap between, um, between the, 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 the Chinese culture and and the western culture um because i mean the gaps the gap is huge it's it's amazing i was i i just came i came across an infographic a couple weeks ago um and it, it was it um it organized the world's languages into different levels of of difficulty for uh, a native english speaker to to learn um and as, as you might imagine you know french spanish um all that stuff was was a lot of the european languages um at least were in level one um but then you know chinese japanese korean arabic these were all level five, uh, so the hardest languages to learn. And you know, I think as any any uh, anthropologist or or uh, 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 linguist will tell you, um, you know, there's there's a very strong correlation between uh, uh, culture and and language. And so to learn a language, you have to learn that culture. And so being able to learn the language, learn the culture, and and bridge that gap uh, is is uh, very very valuable. Yeah, I mean, so no doubt that's valuable. And so I'd agree. You know, it's like it, it's certainly valuable. And so there's magnitude, and if something's valuable. Right, and so I think if we look up, if we look at the massive opportunities afforded to the world by the Chinese economy and society and people and all that sort of stuff, I think eighty percent of it is you know local local stuff, right? And it doesn't mean a foreigner is precluded from playing in that, but you know like eighty percent of the opportunity is. Like you get in there into the Chinese market, like you're playing the market game. You know, this is the market economy. You're going to build great products and services to try to take advantage of this market. Right? That's eighty percent of the opportunity. And then there's, and then maybe there's twenty percent of the opportunity, which is for advisors, consultants, service providers. Um, you know, the financial guys, the lawyers, and maybe some of these cultural bridge makers that like you're referring to. 
Um, and so, yes, it's valuable. And, you know, that could be one strategy for somebody. And it, it's very useful, you know, like no doubt about it. You know, my only concern would be this is small, smaller than some of the other opportunities. And yes, the other opportunities are more difficult, um, you know, but, you know, sometimes we want to go for the big ones, you know, so, like sometimes we want to climb Mount Everest because it's difficult, right? Because it's there, right? Uh, Sir Edmund Hillary said that, right? Because it's there. That's why I climbed the thing, right? Um, you know, it's difficult. It's big. Um, you know, 25% of the people who, uh, who like attempt... Mount Everest don't make it right, and, and many many die, perish, unfortunately. Um, um, and, and so, so there's that approach. That's the eighty percent, and then there's the twenty percent, which is a little bit, you know, the service providers and all that sort of stuff. And you know, again, it's valuable, so no one wants to take away from that. And that may be a relevant strategy. Um, um, but you know, I, I I'm kind of like, you know, forget that, go for the big thing. You know, that's what. Yeah. So, well, I, I mean, so just just one 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 last question though, because I'm 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 super curious. So, um, so now now you're you're an investor at uh, at Queens Road Capital. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and you know what that transition was like? What's what do you think some of the biggest differences are between uh, uh, being an entrepreneur and and being an investor? Well, the good thing is that some of the similar I think some of the similarities first and foremost is when you're running a company, we're always coaching and mentoring our staff, right? Getting them up to speed, motivating them, you know, making them the best that they can. And as an investor, we do the same thing. When we invest in companies, we, we try to mentor our CEOs and again, try to get them to be at the best they be. And so that's similar. Um, what's different, I think, is running a company, you have a mission. It's very mission driven. As an as an investor, we're managing portfolios because that's the only that's the only way we make serious money, right? Is we got to invest in a few companies, right? And so that takes away from that unadulterated, single-minded mission um, that maybe like an entrepreneur has. And so that's kind of one of the big differences. And it was something that you know took me a while to get used to. So do you think do you think you'd ever um, be be an entrepreneur again? Kind of go back into into that role? Yeah, maybe I'll think about it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> cool. Um, well, all right. So I guess that's that, that, that's about it. Real quick, as as a way to wrap up. Um, um, if uh, if anyone wants to uh, to find you online or or get in touch through social media, where where can they do that? Well, they can go to our website. To just uh, ping me. You know, so queensroadcapital.com. You know, just ping me that way, cool. or, or also on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well. So so both ways. Awesome. Just go and ping me. I'm happy to have a chat. Great. All right. Well, Fritz, thank you so much again. All right, guys. Talk soon. Yeah. And that's about all the time we have for this edition of China Tech Talk. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. Or if you're on Pocket Cast or Overcast, you can tap on that star button and it will recommend this episode to your network.